0: And I would invite you this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, there's a pew Bible in front of you, you may have it on your phone, your iPad, whatever, Uh, or you may have brought your own with you, Uh, turn to Acts again. We're working our way through principles in the book of Acts, and so we're in Acts chapter two today, as we kind of hop and skip and jump around a little bit, Acts chapter two. When did it happen for you? Can you recall, maybe it was a statement, can you recall a conversation, can you recall a a sermon or a message, can you recall the circumstances and you look back on that instance and you go, oh, that changed my life, that experience changed my life. I believe, if we're honest and we look back, there are many moments that we say, oh, that was life-changing. I remember praying with my parents. I was nine years old, and I prayed that night. In fact, I went back years later and found the devotional book that my dad had read from that God had used to really... Convict me that I wasn't walking with Jesus, and I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my life. And now, as a seminary graduate with multiple degrees behind my name, I went and read that book, and I went, That wasn't even a salvation story. <laughs> the gospel isn't even here. <laughs> but God used it, changed my life. I remember one day in January of my first year at the Moody Bible Institute, I was at the dining room, standing there talking to my friend Dan, and a cute co-ed came walking up, and we talked a little bit. She was one of our co-workers, and she walked away, and I turned to Dan, and I said, she's cute. I'm going to take her out one of these days. A few weeks later, I made good on that promise, and we've been dating ever since, since 1979. Changed my life. It wasn't but a few weeks later in March of that year, I'm sitting in a church on LaSalle Street in Chicago, listening to a sermon I did not want to hear for a lot of reasons. And the, the uh, speaker for the day spoke some things that God used to grab me by the collar, as it were, and say, you better listen, this is for you. And I'm here today because of that sermon changed my life. I can think of, I mean, being there for all three of our children being born. They're now adults and children of their own. Changed my life. We all have life-changing moments. And, and, And given a moment to think through them, I know that you can think through certain times. Changed your life. Such is the case. For 2,120 people in Acts chapter 2. As we mentioned last week, the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus came in a powerful, visible, undeniable way to 120 people who were in a room, I believe, praying and waiting. And as they spilled out of that room and as they were speaking languages and as they were speaking dialects of all the people that were in there and that they're listed there, the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and on and on and on. And as they were speaking, these people said, they're speaking in our language. They're speaking in our dialect. How can this be? It opened the door for Peter to to preach what I would say is his very first public sermon and what a sermon it was i'm i i had to as i was thinking of life changing moments my first sermon wasn't really that life changing you know I, the first sermon i preached in our other church i'm a brand new seminary grad i decided uh, we were two services at that point i decided i would preach from ecclesiastes chapter 12 our senior pastor was gone he put me in the pulpit and I named the sermon, That I titled the sermon, you're going to love this, The Meaning of Life. <laughs> what was I thinking? I don't know if it changed anybody's life. I don't think it changed mine. But this sermon that Peter hit, sometimes we talk about a sermon being a home run. This one was a grand slam because it was in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit. It was completely fueled by the presence and the reality and the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and when he spoke, God worked. And if you've been following our series, you'll catch that we have three principles. In fact, let me weave those into one sentence. This sermon was completely fueled by the power and reality and presence of the Holy Spirit. It was birthed out of many days of prayer and spoken in complete reliance on the Holy Spirit. Those our first three principles in one sentence. Principle one was trust in the reality, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit. And what we're looking at are these timeless and cultureless principles that are woven out into the book of Acts. Our second principle was individual and corporate prayer is to be a core reality in any church. Our third principle last week was rely on the Holy Spirit to empower and guide us. And today we hit our fourth principle focus on our core message, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our core message. We live in a time where people talk about, you know, what's your messaging, what's your branding, all of that. And for these group of people who didn't know those marketing terms, they just knew that it had to be about Jesus. It always had to be about Jesus. And in fact, if you look at the major sermons within Acts this one that we'll look at in more detail in chapter 2. You could look at chapter 3. You could look at chapter 7. Two places there. Chapter 10, chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 20, chapter 26. All sermons. And if you go read every one of those, you're going to find that the core message is about Jesus. About Jesus and what he taught and what he did. We need to focus on our core message, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when I say the word gospel, many of us who may be familiar with the church or the Bible automatically think about one thing the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would, in one sense, wholeheartedly agree with that. And yet, I believe if we limit our definition of gospel to just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we actually limit what gospel really is. Because remember this, three years before he went to the cross, Jesus preached repeatedly the gospel, the kingdom, the good news. And so we need to broaden our understanding. Because I'm becoming more and more aware of the fact that a broader understanding of gospel that, yes, might begin with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but then really has to be much broader than that, reminds me of a very simple, very important point. Gospel affects everything. Gospel affects everything. When Jesus preached long before, Jesus didn't start out by saying, Guess what? I'm going to go die in Jerusalem. No, he kept that really quiet for a long time. What he did preach was, I've come to present the kingdom. Here's what the kingdom looks like. The kingdom cares for the outcasts. The kingdom cares for the socially unacceptable. The kingdom reaches out to tax collectors and sinners. The kingdom has compassion on outcasts. The kingdom touches the untouchable. The kingdom shows kindness to women and children who were considered non-entities. The kingdom challenges religiosity and man-made rules healing the sick, setting the captives free from the demonic, from the injustice, from fear. Jesus did so much more than teach and preach about one event. That one event is very important. It's pivotal, but to get up to that event, we've got to look at the whole span of gospel. Gospel affects everything. The message That we take from the cross is a very important message. Forgiveness is of our sins, the right to be called children of God. But the action that we take from the cross is that the presence of God, the Holy Spirit in our lives, has to affect everything we do. Now, turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Let's look at Peter's sermon. Uh, Peter's sermon comes on the heels, as I've said, of these people spilling out of that upper room and speaking, and, and, and it, it caught everybody by surprise that were there. And uh, some people were saying, what does this mean? Verse 13 of Acts 2, some, however, made fun of them and said, Wait, too much wine. Yeah, they've had a little too much party in here on this Pentecost time when we're celebrating harvest. And, and Peter... Not having had a lot of public speaking experience except for sticking his foot in his mouth, Peter stands up. Peter addresses the crowd. And he starts with that point, which is a really good public speaking point. Uh, Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. A good, devout, first century Jewish person was looking for the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. Joel, as I just read earlier from chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, are, are words that they long to be see fulfilled. I mentioned a little bit, let me go back and do it again, a little bit about the history. Uh, and, and just as a, an advertisement, in the new year, my plan is to do a series of sermons through the minor prophets. So, you know, get ready. Uh, as I mentioned, Joel prophesied, and it was during one of the golden times in the history of Israel, uh, a guy by the name of Uzziah was on the king. Uh, in fact, you, if you know your Bible a little bit, you know in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is just blown away the year that King Uzziah died. What, what, what are we going to do now? Here's the thing. Uzziah was a, a guy, he became king when he was 16. Think about that. I wanted to be a king when I was 16. Didn't work out. He, but, but he was a good king. He was a powerful king. Under his reign, he was able to secure the land. He was able to build up the defenses so that enemies couldn't come in. Under his reign, they they saw economic prosperity under the reign of Uzziah, and, and, and things were going great. I mean, it was good to be in Israel during King Uzziah. Things were good. But under his reign... The worship of God was complacent. You know, there's an interesting thing that happens when we become, sometimes when we become economically secure, when we become kind of secure in who we are, it's like, well, I I don't need God that much. But if gospel affects everything, I need God every single day. I need gospel every single day. They got complacent. And in fact, Uzziah's reign ended uh, with him being locked away in a room because one day he decided, I'm the king. And so he went and he grabbed a censer, uh, a big round ball with some uh, incense in it, and he went to offer it to the altar. I'm the king. God put me in this position. And he was struck with leprosy and ended up finishing out his reign, locked in a room, and his son kind of managing things. God takes our worship of him seriously. And in this warning, Joel warns that there's a locust plague coming, and it's going to be followed by drought, and the reason that God is sending that is he wants to smack you in the face, wake you up a little bit. As I said, tear your hearts, rend your hearts, repent, and come to me. And then he said there's a second locust plague coming, but they're not really locusts. They're the Assyrian armies, and they will come through like locusts, and they will wipe everything out. And and God says, I want you to come to me. I'm going to restore you, though. And that's where this prophecy comes in. And so what Peter is saying as he reads this, let me just pick it up in verse 15, uh, verse 16. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter is saying the Spirit of God has been poured out on all the people. God is with them. And notice he says the Spirit of God is poured out. If it's fulfillment, this is fulfilling Joel, sons, daughters, young men, old men, men, women, no one is excluded from the work of God. No one is excluded from the indwelling spirit of God. Peter says this is the dawning of the last days. And he says in verse 17, starting there, he says there's this, uh, in verse uh, 18, he says there's going to come these cataclysmic events on heaven and earth, and they're going to take place. But God's people don't need to be afraid. Why? Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You say, well, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? To call on the name of the Lord means to recognize and to fully accept and to totally rely on the person and character of God, the person and character and authority of God. In one sense, that's probably one's first act of worship, to call on the name of the Lord, to call on him alone for deliverance. When I call on his name, it's like I'm reaching out and saying, I've got nothing left I depend completely on you. I am leaning on you. You are the only one I need. And that leads us to a second thing. Gospel affects everything. I don't want you to forget that. You're going to hear it time and again. But then notice what he says. Pick it up in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God Accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible. For death to keep its hold on him. By the way, that's not user friendly. You did this, people. You participated in this. They kind of tell us in public speaking don't go start accusing your audience of stuff. It's kind of a way to turn your audience off. But Peter isn't worried about what his audience thinks because he's preaching from the power of the Holy Spirit. And the point that he makes here, and the point that we need to remember when we're looking at our core message is Jesus is always the center of the message. Jesus, Peter says, was accredited by God to you. That's a a term that many of us are familiar with. When you choose a college, you want to make sure it's accredited, accredited by certain associations. That means, accrediting means it's proven academically. It means that the programs are proven academically. You know, I remember, and fortunately I've only been adjunct, so I never had to worry about it, but when accreditation comes along and the accreditation committee comes to the school, it's it's a big deal. It's a big deal. I remember when they came to our seminary, and after they left, we got our accreditation. But one of the things that they mentioned that I thought was very interesting is they said, you need to, as a school, give your professors more time to research in their fields your giving them too many classes to teach and not giving them time to research. And if you're to be accredited, their research needs to keep going on. I thought, that's interesting. We use that. Jesus was proven by God, proven in a variety of ways. He was accredited to them by God. How? He did miracles. He showed wonders and signs, amazing things. God did these through Jesus to the people so they would see, this is Jesus. I mean, he, he fed 5,000 men, and we had women and children. We might be up to 20,000 with five loaves and two fish. He did that. And, and that should have been enough for people to go, oh, whoa, hey, we're buying into this. But see, you can see all the evidence. You still have to choose to believe it. What Paul says is Jesus came and showed proof of his deity because he's the center of the message. Paul says verses 23 and 24, he was obedient to the Father's plan, handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. And you, by the way, audience, you participate in that plan. You were actually doing God's will whether you knew it or not. Because God's plan is greater than human works, God raised Jesus from the dead. In fact, if you go over to Romans 8, verse 11, Paul says, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead indwells you. That's why I say, don't tell me you can't change. (laughs) You can change. Or the Holy Spirit isn't powerful, which I just, I don't for a minute believe. The same spirit that take that lifeless body of Jesus and raised him up is in you and me. In fact, Paul goes on, he says, Jesus has been the center of of the message throughout prophecy. Or Peter goes on, says, Jesus has been the center of the message throughout prophecy. Listen to this, verse 25. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with the joy of your presence. And Peter says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that David, the the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. How many have you ever heard anybody call David a prophet? We talk about him being a king, man after God's own heart. Peter says, he was a prophet. He saw what we've long, what we've seen. He said, David believed one day God's Holy One would come and not see the decay of death. The point being, Jesus is alive. People, this Jesus, he's alive. Jesus is exalted. Peter then goes on. Seeing that this was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. What you're seeing, 120 people speaking all these dialects. What you're seeing, us testifying to the risen Christ. This is the work of God. Then he goes on, he says, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. That's a quote from Psalm 110. So the first one is from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, and then we have Psalm 110, verse 1. It's a a messianic psalm, Psalm 110, a messianic psalm of exaltation, a messianic psalm of victory, a messianic psalm of deliverance. And in fact, it's a psalm that the writer to the Hebrews will use about the eternality of Jesus. But it's also a verse that Jesus used to confront the Pharisees during his last week on earth, and uh, in in, in, in last week of human life, as it were, in the sense that he, he came to them and he said, David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who's David talking about? And they wouldn't answer him. Because the reality was he was speaking of the Messiah and Jesus tied them up in knots. In fact, Matthew says they they, they wouldn't ask him any more questions after that. Jesus must be the center of the message. Now, Peter concludes his sermon. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is our eternal authority and hope. Peter concludes saying, Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. Those are two very important designations. And they're two for them, and they're two important designations for us. The term Lord means authority. We use that word more often than we think. If you rent an apartment, if you rent a house, if you rent an office space, you have a landlord. The landlord is the sole authority of that building. The landlord sets the terms for rental. They set the price. The landlord determines what you can and cannot do in that property. Sometimes landlords will have offices and they allow you to build to suit. You can build out that office to suit your needs, but you still have to run those plans by the landlord. The landlord decides to sell the property. You can't stop him. Now you have the term of the lease that he can't sell it before your lease is up, but you can't stop him. The bottom line is, the landlord is the owner, the landlord is the sole authority. And when Paul sa- or Peter says that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, what Peter is saying is, Jesus being Lord is his complete, eternal and yet present authority. No one else has that kind of authority. As Lord, Jesus is the ultimate owner. When, I, when you and I may talk about Jesus as Lord of my life, we're saying he is the ultimate owner. He makes all the decisions, or he guides me in the decisions in my life. Who owns your life right now? I know what the, the, the knee-jerk answer. I do. Nobody makes my decisions. I make my own decisions. But biblically speaking, Jesus should be the owner and decision-maker in my life. He is Lord. He's to be my authority. Now, interestingly enough, as Lord, Jesus has chosen to sometimes delegate his authority. We did that as parents when we sent our children to school. We delegated authority to the school officials. In our house... If you got in trouble at school, you got in trouble at home. Because if you disobey your teacher, it's like disobeying us. We delegate it. Jesus delegates his authority through human government, Romans 13, 1-7. Jesus delegates his authority to parents, Exodus twenty twelve again in Ephesians 6, 1-3. Jesus delegates his authority spiritually to leaders in our gatherings. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Now, note this, and it's consistent. Each person to whom Jesus delegates his authority, each entity to to which Jesus delegates authority, is accountable to him for how they use that authority. You go back again and read the Prophets. And and he talks about the Assyrians, especially in some of the prophets, and said, I am going to deal with them because they took my authority and they took it too far, and now I'm going to deal with them. I'm holding them accountable. Parents. My dad used to always preach, children, obey your parents. And our kids went, hey, how come you stop at verse 3, Ephesians 6? Let's do a little Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Come on, Dad. Do the whole Scripture. Somehow we never got to that one. But, you know, uh, I am responsible for how I parent my children, and my children are responsible before God for how they obeyed me. We give an answer. For our purposes this morning, I think we need to give careful thought to how we are discovering and following Jesus as Lord, as the authority. Remember, this is gospel, and gospel affects everything. But Peter didn't stop there. Not only Jesus is Lord, he's Messiah. Not only is he our authority, he is our hope. Messiah is the Greek word Christos, from which we get the word Christ. It's a word that means anointed or chosen. For those listening, they understood it also to be a term of deliverance. God has appointed Jesus to be the anointed one, the one who brings ultimate deliverance. Remember again, we started in the book of Joel. Peter ends with the book of Joel because the people ask, he says, everyone who who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He ends with that. that. That's a statement of deliverance, but that passage continues. The rest of that verse says this. For on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. The idea of deliverance is bound up in the term Messiah. The people hear all of this, and and they get it. They totally get it. And they, they cry out. They said, what do we do? This is powerful stuff. We believe it. What do we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And it says that day about... 3,000, so I was wrong earlier. 3,120, about 3,000. What a powerful sermon. All fueled by the Holy Spirit. But I want you to note what happens following this. Not only here, but I would say work your way through the book of Acts and you're going to find an interesting thing that happens. Because... Everything changes in their lives. Everything changes. Why? Because gospel affects everything. There's a community of believers that develop. They grow together. They want to learn more. They want to be together. They they share meals together. They share belongings together. They make sure that nobody is without. Gospel affects everything. You go to chapter 6 and they make sure that the widows, the most vulnerable in the community, are cared for equitably because gospel affects everything. You get to chapter 10 and you realize that Peter understands all of a sudden that, that the gospel crosses over racial boundaries and ethnic boundaries because gospel affects everything. Chapter 8, Samaritans come to know the gospel. Samaritans, the outcasts, the the half-breeds, the ones that nobody cared about. Gospel changes them. They come to know. There's a generosity that develops, and it starts there in Jerusalem, but you get further on in Acts, and Jerusalem is besieged by persecution. People leave. The church at Jerusalem that was so generous becomes poor. And so what's the apostle Paul do? He, he goes around the Mediterranean taking up an offering to take back to the poor saints of Jerusalem because generosity flows out of gospel. Gospel affects Everything. When the core message of Jesus Christ is believed, then every aspect of life is truly changed. Let me me put it in 21st century terms. Gospel should inform my social justice. Gospel should open my eyes to racism in all of its forms and nuances so I can stand against it. Gospel should make me a person of integrity in all of my doings gospel should inform my career decisions gospel should give me courage when i'm ostracized and even persecuted for my faith gospel should make me a person not only of integrity but a person of generosity gospel should impact my family in positive ways gospel should pull me up short when i'm wrong so i will change and get more in line with and recenter my actions on christ If the core message of the early church is gospel of Jesus Christ, it's that because gospel affects everything. Now it may be today after we're all done here, you may come up to me and say, Oh, Pastor Scott, what a great reminder. I mean, it reminded me of that time when I prayed and and received Jesus into my life. It reminded me of that journey in my life where I was going this way. I was far from God. But as I began to grow, I began to realize, no, I needed to come to God. And, And somewhere along the way, my path turned, and now I'm following Him. And I will be thrilled with that story. I will be ecstatic with that story. But... If your next statement is, and now I get to go to heaven, I will be sad. Do you notice that was never in Peter's sermon? Oh, I'm not saying heaven isn't real. I'm not saying it's not a hope. But that's not the point of gospel. The point of gospel is, what impact does it have on me now? Gospel is not a free ticket to heaven. Gospel is change now with a promise of eternal life. But gospel should drive everything. It's about how I live now. It's about Holy Spirit presence and influence in my life now. Gospel is about Jesus being the leader and the forgiver and the owner of my life now. We need to spend our time, effort, and energy in what we do to live gospel Now, far more than we spend thinking about some place that we have no control over and a future that is God's to give us, not ours to obtain. Gospel should instill in us a deep desire to live as examples of the love, compassion, care, generosity, courage, contentment, and integrity that was modeled by the whole life of Jesus we must focus on our core message, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, because gospel affects everything. Those moments in your life when you knew, beyond the shadow of a doubt that things were changing, that things would never be the same, those are, in a way, gospel moments But the question is, what are you doing with those life-changing moments today? Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the stark reminder in your word from the sermon of Peter that it really is about Jesus. It's about gospel, and gospel affects everything. May we never stray away from that core message. Oh, there are lots of applications of the core message, but the core message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that today we would think more deeply about gospel. Yes, to think about the cross, to think about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but to also think about the life that Jesus modeled before us And his call to his disciples and us, follow me. May we follow you and thus live gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.